Welcome everybody to our final installment in this six-part series on confronting Christianity. And we've been posing really difficult questions that come to the Christian faith. And we've had a really great guide with us on this journey with Rebecca. She's been our Sacagawea, to borrow that analogy from Lewis and Clark, to help us to navigate these really difficult and sometimes even uncharted questions that we wrestle with today. Rebecca, how are you doing tonight? I am doing well, thank you. Yeah, I've been having a focused day of writing, so. Oh my goodness. Uh, I'm well, a little tired. <laughs> well, welcome welcome to human interaction, even though it's pixelated. I'm, I'm glad that we get to have a conversation as somebody who will put my head down and write stuff as well. I know that it's like, wow, okay, human human connection here. So glad to, <laughs> glad to share that with you at the, at the end of this journey together. And just wanted to say a huge thank you to you for uh, setting aside your time to prioritize, to help to coach and equip people up on being able to deal with these questions and how to think responsibly and faithfully in the midst of them. And I hope that you just continue to get to see a great fruitfulness and faithfulness from, uh, from your book and the, uh, the catalytic nature of it being something that starts conversations. I mean, one of the things that, uh, that I love to say is, is that I'm glad to have a faith conversation with you as long as what you don't hear me say as a pastor is that this is the end of the story, but that this is the beginning of a conversation and a relationship, that this is a dynamic process. So want to say thank you to everybody who's joining us for this one. You've made it to the end. That's always pretty exciting uh, if you're at this point. And feel free to throw in your chat comments or Q&A. Uh, we'd love to be able to get to the end one. And we'll even be a little less disciplined at the end of whether or not you're on topic, because since this is our last one, uh, we'll, we'll give you a little more rope, um, a little more leash to, to be able to wander into other questions. Well, let's jump right into today's topic, because it's it's a doozy. This is a, a, a really interesting topic because we're going to be uh, asking the question of, of doesn't Christianity denigrate women? And so I thought a good place to start would be for us to start at the beginning. Let's start at the foundational text of the book of Genesis. And when you, Rebecca, when you look at those kind of opening chapters of Genesis, what do we learn about gender and sexuality from kind of that foundational level? Yeah, that's a great question to start with, and it's I'm writing a book at the moment where pretty much every chapter I have begun by saying, in Genesis 1, mm -hmm. God creates humans in his image, male and female, yeah. and it, emphasizing different pieces of that depending on the exact topic that I'm addressing, but this, this foundational idea that we get in literally chapter 1 of the Bible is that all of human beings, regardless of their race or gender or age or ability status or amount of money they have anything else we're all made in the image of god mm. and so i think the first thing that's important to say about women is that we are made in the image of god and, and that to us that that sort of foundational plank of, of equality between men and women is something that you and i and frankly our non-christian friends take for granted as a, as a as a given that men and women are fundamentally equal yep but but actually it, it's it, it was quite radical uh, in in the ancient world and in the first century world uh, where Christianity was, was born and, and took this idea and gave it kind of even, even greater legs, uh, that was not the assumption in the ancient world at all. It's actually right. not the assumption either in, in many cultures today that have not been strongly shaped by Christianity. So, you know, point one from Genesis chapter one, we have that men and women are made equally in God's image. 
Now, chapter two, some people sort of read Genesis one and say, okay, great, well, here we have human equality of male and female. And then in chapter two, gosh, we have God making the man first and then saying, okay, it's not good for him to be alone. So um, I'm gonna make a helper for him. And we hear that word helper and we think, oh, that sounds kind of demeaning. Like if, if a woman is created to, to help the man, we immediately think in terms of things like this. Right. Now, the problem with that is actually that the word helper and its related words are used most frequently in the Old Testament to describe God himself. Right. Um, you know, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. I mean, time and again, we see God described as the helper. So, so the, the assumption that helper necessarily means kind of inferior or subordinate somehow is actually completely wrong. Um, and I, I don't think that the point in Genesis 2 is that the woman is an afterthought or that she is lesser. I think the point that God's making in, in the, the retelling of the creation story there is that um, human beings are, are equal, but actually different from the animals. So we see that, um, you know, the animals are, are brought to Adam, he names them, or the man, depending on how you want to look at it. Uh, and then when God creates woman from the man's side, mm -hmm. not from, you know, his foot or from any sort of doing it, but from the, the man's side, she is then bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. Mm -hmm. So he recognizes her as being like him and, and different from the animals. And again, we kind of hear the implicit like comparison with the animals as like, oh, well, you know, women sort of somewhere between men and animals. No, 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 actually that, that's an emphasizing of the fact that human beings are fundamentally different from animals. And one of the things that I find really interesting as I, I read more kind of atheist thinkers today if evolution is your only origin story for humans, hmm. and I want to be clear about saying your only origin story, because actually I don't think evolution by itself necessarily eliminates the idea of a creator God or, or the truth of, of any of these things that some of the top evolutionary scientists in the world today are serious Christians. But if evolution is your only origin story for humans, then we have no reason to say that humans are in any kind of fundamental sense different from animals. Hmm. If we have the story of Christianity, then we can absolutely make that claim, not because we're, we're not animals. I mean, I, I answer to all, all the descriptions of a mammal, I also answer to, you know, and as a mother of three children, I can kind of, I can prove it. Um, it it's not that, that we're not, that there's some sort of some extra part of our body that is not like an animal, mm -hmm. but actually we are fundamentally different from animals because we are made in the image of God. How do we know that? Because God says so. And that is the, the building block, the sort of fundamental ground floor foundation for every argument about human equality, whether it's people of different races or people in different countries or people of different ages or, or for men and women, that, that's the sort of starting point. Yeah, that's great. My favorite kind of exegetical or biblical insight from those opening chapters is that the word that is used for rib to describe where Eve comes from that's the only time in uh, the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, that that word is actually used to describe human anatomy. The rest of the time it's used to describe sacred architecture. Yeah. So, so like in the temple, the rib, like the temple, the arch, the like, so the idea of that what's being created at the beginning here, there's kind of this implication throughout the text of that, that that verbiage is that God's creating sacred architecture here in the way that mm -hmm. he's fashioned um, male and female together. And um, well, we, we live in a really interesting time right now. And this is, I mean, 
this is not even a discussion that, um, you know, I'm, I'm in my late forties and this is not discussions that I had until within the last like 10 years. This, I, this idea of gender being non-binary mm -hmm. um, is such a recent kind of flashpoint conversation. How, how do you think these foundational texts, but also just the Christian witness as a whole, how, how as Christians are we to respond to those types of conversations? Yeah, yeah, gosh, massive, massive question. And one that I think will, it'll be interesting, you know, if we re revisited this in five or 10 years time, it, the conversation could be very different because actually there are, there are multiple different strands at the moment that are working their way through um, what you could call a sort of, a sort of transgender rights movement. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think from, from a Christian perspective, you know, we, we want to have some uh, foundational pieces. So one is um, you know, the idea of men and women being equal, but also different. And that there is something that God has, that there is sort of an original diversity that God has created in humanity, which is the diversity of male and female. And if, in, in many senses, at a biological level, it is simply the case that male and female is a, is a binary thing, that bi biological sex is binary. And it is because of the, the binary nature of biological sex that we can reproduce. So there is something sort of foundational about that. Um, and I was talking a few years ago with a, a friend who's a, a professional biologist, and he said, he made this interesting comment, if we found life on another planet, mm -hmm that was also, even if it was in a very different form, if it was the kind of life that reproduces sexually, we would be able to spot the male and the female of the species because the, the females would have fewer large eggs and the males would have many, many small equivalent to sperm. Like it's, it's so um, woven into all sorts of different life forms that there's this sense of, of a binary there. Now, there, it is also true, and this is something that often kind of confuses people, and I think sometimes you know, Christians don't really think through. It is also true that some people are born biologically, what we might call intersex, um, meaning that they are not sort of fully developed either male or female. In the vast majority of that case, of cases where that's the case, and a friend of mine had a baby a few years ago who was um, intersex, in the vast majority of cases, it's not that that person is not kind of recognizably one or the other, as in you kind of don't know what your starting point is, but that there's, there's something that hasn't developed in the, in the typical way. So it is certainly the case that there are some people who don't at a, just a purely biological level kind of fit neatly into the male or female category. And often those folks are kind of used in, in broader political conversations to say, you know, therefore, there's no such thing as male and female. The, the, these are not kind of two different things. Um, and, and in fact, it, it's just kind of a, a, a spectrum. And what's interesting to me is that sometimes the, the same folks who will be arguing for a spectrum view of biological sex will also be arguing that, for example, somebody who identifies as a transgender woman, like a biological male who identifies as a woman is in some sort of real sense actually a woman but there's this kind of odd way in which um in, in some of the conversations around transgender identities there's almost this like clinging onto a very strong gender binary that says this person 
despite having a what we would recognize in any other context as a male body or despite having what we recognize as a female body is in fact in some real sense the opposite not just they would prefer to to be identified as the opposite or that they you know would like have had surgeries or taken um uh, you know hormones to to make them look more like the opposite but that they actually are in some real sense the opposite so there's a sort of strange or um complex shall we say a uh, set of conversations going on where some people are saying, um, you know, there's really no such thing as male and female in, a, in the traditional sense. And others are saying, actually, yes, there is, but these people belong in this camp and not in that camp. That's one of the, the kind of confusing things that's going on. And, and another, and again, you know, this is <laughs> Many large conversations could be had, and I know we only have a short sort of space of time. So topic just on this, yeah. Um, it is so interesting to me the way things have played out with J.K. Rowling mm -hmm. in the last few months, and I don't know if folks have, have followed this, but um, she, obviously the, the author of the Harry Potter series, has received a lot of criticism for making um, what a few years ago would have been very kind of banal politically liberal statements. <laughs> um, she she doesn't have any problem with people identifying as as um, the, the other sex that what they were born with etc. But she does think that there are certain spaces that should be reserved only for biological females, and and this has uh, produced like a, a pretty aggressive backlash from from certain folks who would see themselves as trans, transgender activists. And one of the things that fascinated me was that um, Daniel Radcliffe, who played Harry Potter in the, in the film series, he felt the need to respond to J.K. Rowling, and he wrote this piece for a, um, an LGBT website in which he makes the claim, transgender women are women. And what interests me about that is that I don't know what that statement actually means. Yeah. It, trans, it, so what, what he's saying kind of grammatically is that somebody with the, the biological body of a man is, is in fact a woman and, and then therefore Whereas historically, having the physical body of a woman would have been at least central to the idea of what it meant to be a woman. There might be all sorts of other things we would infer, but the fact that I am like biologically female, have the body of the woman, would be the, the sort of front and center of what it means to be a woman. If the statement transgender women or women is true, what does it mean to be a woman? We actually have no definition of what that thing is. Yeah. And that is, I know I was beginning today with like opening up a little bit of a Pandora's box because <laughs> that is probably the most uh, politically charged thing. And these things come in and out of season in terms of their level of charge. You know, it used to be homosexuality questions or it used to be abortion or it used to be whatever it is. And right now that seems to be the kind of the, the biggest hot button issue um, that we're sort of facing in terms of the, the testing of the waters and is, you know, is gender purely a social construction? Is it merely an individual choice? Uh, what are the biological factors? These are some ethical waters that Christians are going to have to uh, figure out how to navigate. And, and I think the, the key is to be able to do so thoughtfully and deeply and faithfully but also with a great deal of empathy and compassion, um, because sometimes we, when we get into these challenging spaces, uh, and one of the things I've just really appreciated about our conversations, Rebecca, is, is the is the fact that you do demonstrate that empathy as you're 
uh, sharing your convictions as well. Well, I want to shift gears a little bit to, to go back to specifically about the question about uh, the denigration of women. I mean, when you look at the Old Testament in particular, um, the, women are not treated well in a lot of those stories. I mean, ever since you get to the fall. So in Genesis 1 and 2, things are pretty good. We got a, we got a helper who's created in the image of God in terms of what helping means and coming alongside one another and equality. And then Genesis chapter 3 starts the blame game and the pointing of fingers. And then there are a lot of what some people call texts of terror. I mean, it's, it's rape, it's mistreatment, it's abuse uh, in, in a, lot of, uh, a lot of different quotients. So can you help us to just navigate what that looks like? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think first it's important to recognize that the Old Testament describes many things that it does not prescribe. Hmm. Uh, all sorts of sinful practices, including sinful things done by supposed sort of heroes of the faith are all over the Old Testament. Right. And so just because something is described in an Old Testament narrative does not mean that it is uh, recommended or, or endorsed um, by the Lord. And I find it interesting, um, you know, one example of this is when God makes promises to Abraham um, that depend on him having a child. And his wife, Sarah, has this great idea, like, okay, you know, clearly we're too old to have a child, or I'm too old, Sarah, to have a child, but why don't you sleep with our servant girl, Hagar, and uh, maybe she can have a child sort of for us. Now, that wasn't what God told Abraham to do. In fact, it's like quite clearly against, it's, it's not trusting in, in God's promises and abilities to, um, to perform miracles that, that Abraham goes along with that. Um, and Hagar gets pregnant, uh, and then Sarah sort of rather regrets her decision, and um, it ends up, you know, Hagar ends up sort of fleeing from, from Sarah's behavior towards her. So clearly, like, all sorts of bad things going on there. God then meets with Hagar in the wilderness and has a conversation with this, um, you know, Egyptian slave girl who, in the culture of of the time, I mean, would not have been afforded any particular rights. And, and in fact, I mean, the from a, an ancient Near Eastern point of view, her becoming the mother of Abraham's child was kind of a status upgrade, um, you know, becoming a sort of functional second wife to Abraham. Um, God meets with her and, and she's the first person to give God a name. She says, you are the God who sees me. Um, so there again, we sort of we see a situation where a, a woman has been treated in a way that we, particularly looking back with New Testament eyes, recognise as quite wrong. Right. Um, but but rather than God kind of celebrating this, we see Him actually um, validating her and making promises to her that, that in many ways parallel His promises to Abraham and and, and protecting and, and providing for her. Um, so I, I think absolutely we see terrible things done to women in, in many points in the Old Testament. Um, but they're, they're not things that are encouraged and, and endorsed. Yeah, I think that importance of the description, something being descriptive versus prescriptive is very important and probably one of the most fundamental things that I see people making a mistake with when they, when they read the Bible is they confuse those two different things. What is the Bible asking of us? What's God asking of us when we look at this text? And um, I mean, and God does work in remarkable ways through the women of the Old Testament when you think of Tamar and Ruth and, um, and the fact that Rahab, that these are women who were in the lineage of Jesus, um, mm -hmm. even 
in there and you know the genealogies of Jesus and called forth is remarkable in spite of the patriarchy in spite of the mistreatment God was still working something but Jesus when we get to him specifically as we work our way forward through the Bible Jesus had a remarkable demeanor disposition and treatment of women that was so radical for the day can you help us to understand how radical Jesus was with women yeah, again, the idea that women were fundamentally equal to men was not in any sense a given in the Roman world. It would have been actually kind of laughed at by, by the, the Greeks and, and Romans who thought women were clearly inferior. And actually that sex was kind of a way of proving it. Um, have a, a man having sex with somebody was sort of a demonstration of their inferiority, actually whether they were male or female, but it was certainly a demonstration of a, a woman's inferiority. Um, Jesus's approach to women is, is quite shocking. Uh, he treats women um, with care and respect and not just sort of any old women, but it seems like he almost seeks out women who would have been despised by others. So you know, one great example is the, the Samaritan woman at the well uh, with whom Jesus has, I think, the longest recorded conversation with any individual in the Gospels. And there is no way he should have been talking to her. She was a, a Samaritan, which meant she was a sort of hated foreigner. Uh, be a woman, which, you know, respectable Jewish rabbis shouldn't have talked to her. See, she's had five husbands and the man she's now with is not her husband. She's only a woman of ill repute. Mm -hmm. And Jesus chooses to spend his time with her and reveal himself to her as the, the Messiah. Right. Um, and then she goes back to her town and, and is effectively a missionary for him. Um, or you think of the, the woman who um, comes into the, the dinner party when Jesus is dining at, at Simon the Pharisee's house and she's crying on Jesus's feet and pouring ointment on them and, and washing them with her, um, her tears and wiping them with her hair. And she is a, a sinful, like the, the text says, you know, the sinful woman of the city. So, you know, likely a, maybe a prostitute, who knows, but certainly a woman who is kind of labeled as specifically sinful and, and um, to be discarded. And the, the Pharisee looks at this and he says, oh my goodness, if this man was a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman was touching him. And he would want nothing to do with this woman here. And Jesus, rather than saying, oh gosh, you're right, gosh, no, I haven't realized. <laughs> he actually holds her up as, as a moral example to shame this self-righteous Pharisee. Mm -hmm. And we see this happening frequently in Jesus's ministry that he actually held, holds up women as moral examples to men that are often kind of paralleled two together and we see it, it right through to the the resurrection accounts when the women um witness the resurrection and then jesus sort of rebukes his disciples for being foolish and slow of heart um to not believe what the the scriptures said but actually when they've just told him you know some women came and told us this thing and we we dismissed it as foolish talk um, so we see this this pattern through the gospels of jesus treating women who were um, considered as especially unworthy of his attention mm -hmm. uh, with care and respect and inviting them into relationship with him. Yeah. One of my favorite encounters uh, of those examples is the woman who's hemorrhaging and who's bleeding and the physician mm. can't help her. She mm. reaches out, touches his cloak and he, and he, and he turns to her and after getting, you know, her to self-identify who touched me, daughter, your faith has healed you. I mean, the, the yeah. affection and the tenderness and the the love of Jesus and you know someone that would have been considered ritualistically unclean and if a rabbi had been known to have been touched by a woman who was hemorrhaging that I mean it's just a remarkable to see his his interaction with women well 
as, as remarkable as that is, and as clear as that is, the waters get a little murkier when we get to the letters of Paul and some of the writing. Um, so I wanna address with that with a couple, of, a couple of different questions. One is, I'm preaching on Ephesians 5 in a couple of weeks. So how would you advise me uh, on the passage of wives submitting to husbands, husbands loving their wives, um, being subject to one another out of reverence for Christ, that that passage gets um, a lot of attention and, uh, and feels like it's sandpaper on the, you know, um, you know, on the chalkboard of today's, of today's kind of sensibilities. So how, how can we understand what's going on there? Yeah, I, I feel like I may have mentioned some of this a couple of weeks ago, so forgive me if I'm revisiting things. I actually think Ephesians 5 um, clarifies something that's going on throughout the scriptures and makes sense actually of why God made male and female in the first place. And that is that he, he was designing human marriage as a little picture of Jesus' love for his church. We see in, in the Old Testament, we see God um, portrayed as a loving, faithful husband and Israel as his often unfaithful wife. In the Gospels, we see Jesus describing himself as the bridegroom, sort of stepping into the creator God's shoes and covenant relationship with Israel. And then in Ephesians 5, we see Paul presenting marriage as like a little scale model of Jesus' relationship with his church. Mm -hmm. And we, and I, I remember vividly as a, a student, um, when I was sort of first properly engaging with Ephesians chapter 5 and that, that sort of opening command of that little section, wives submit to your husbands as the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. And I was like, oh my goodness, I just completely disorienting after everything that Jesus does in terms of elevating women is this Paul kind of shoving women down again. But if you read on in that passage, you hear husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up to her. And one of the, the mental exercises I find interesting is imagine if that were the command given to wives. Wives, love your husbands to the point of death. Model your love for your husbands on Jesus's death on the cross for us. They're putting their needs above your own, sacrificing yourself for them. That would be a mandate mm -hmm. for an abusive relationship with one's, one's wife. But, but in this picture, the wives submit to their husbands as, the, as uh, we, the church submits to Christ, and the husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church. And, and this is a picture of the, the two kind of actors in, in the play and playing the roles of Jesus, Jesus and his people, uh, it tells us that the fundamental point of human marriage isn't actually my happiness or your happiness or sort of, you know, the fulfillment of two human beings. It, it's to give us a picture of Jesus at the church. Um, and the idea that, uh, that it sort of puts women under men, and I find often in conversations, you know, with other Christians about this, they sort of start doing this funny hand motion when they say, you know, I submit to your husbands like this. I'm like, well, no, no, no. Let's remember what husbands are doing. They are laying down their lives yeah. for their wives. That's two people in, in some senses flat on their faces, but actually the women elevated in, in terms of their, their needs being prioritized. And so I think we have a, a kind of fundamentally um, gospel lacking understanding of marriage if we don't put those two pieces together like Paul does in Ephesians 5. Yeah, the, um, the uh, local pastor here in the area, Andy Stanley, talks about the race to the bottom, meaning that Christians are the ones who are intentionally seeking 
that lower place in marriage and in loving our neighbors and that kind of thing. And when you do that, that's a very different, we, we approach the question with, um, as one of my mentors used to say, everybody wants to stand up for their rights, but nobody wants to stand up for their responsibilities. Like mm -hmm. what's our responsibility in marriage in terms of how we love and serve um, one another. And at the end of the passage, he talks about how it's about respect and it's about loving, um, loving the wife as if she's a part of your own body. Like the, the prescription for men, because this is not just description, but prescription at this point, the description for I mean, the prescription for men is twice as long as the section it is about uh, submission. There's just um, just some great beauty and nuance on what it means to to thrive in relationship and also how that can reflect God's love, as you've pointed us to. Yeah, and just practically there, sorry, I've been married now for 13 years um, to a great guy. So thank God for that. And and honestly one of the conclusions I think every Christian woman should draw from Ephesians 5 is you need to be really careful who you marry. Yeah. Uh, you need to marry somebody who you can who you can trust in the sense that you are willing to um, submit to them as you would to Christ. What I've realized in the last couple of years, and I've sort of been a bit of a late, <laughs> a slow learner on, on this front, so, so often as Christians, we are longing for guidance from the Lord. Mm -hmm. And we would love it if Every time we had a big decision to make, there was some sort of like writing in the sky from, you know, message from Jesus, especially for us, telling us what we should do in this complex situation. And what I've realized is if what Paul says in Ephesians 5 is true, then I can actually bring a decision to Brian and in faith trust that I'm actually getting guidance from the Lord. Not, not because Brian is infallible. But because he's like a prayerful man who is seeking to love me as Christ loved the church and he, you know, we can both kind of hold on to these promises and I can get real guidance from God by submitting decisions to my husband. I know that sounds, that sounds sort of so absurdly countercultural, but um, I'm not saying that because I don't have my own brain or because I'm not educated or because any, you know, or because he's forcing me to none of these things are the case. But I actually think there's a real upside, or there's, there are many upsides, but this is one of the upsides, actually, for Christian wives to so kind of get an extra insight into God's guidance for us day to day. And, and I don't want to lose sight of the whole, the thesis of, this, of, the, of the section is be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he provides some specific advice from that. And sometimes we get so caught up in the specifics of what am I supposed to do with this or with that? And I want to be really clear pastorally to anybody who's listening to this, particularly if you're a woman, this command, you know, that Paul's giving here can be misapplied if somebody's being abused. Yeah. So, so I just want to be absolutely clear that like if, because I've had pastorally somebody come to me and say, I can't, not only can I not divorce him or leave him, I have to submit to him even when I'm being abused. And I'm like, absolutely not. Yeah. That, uh, the assumption uh, is be, I mean, the assumption of the context of what's being talked about there was not a context of an abusive relationship, but a loving relationship. So just want to yeah. be clear about that for anybody who might be listening. Now, while we're on the subject of Paul, um, there are some other statements like about women not teaching or uh, about women being silent in church. How do you, how do you handle those kinds of what seem to be stepping backwards moments from the way that Jesus elevated women and treated them. Yeah, again, I think a, a framing um, important recognition is, as we even come to any questions around who is doing what within the church, 
um, and I was writing about this just yesterday, uh, when um, James and John's mother comes to Jesus and says, I would like to do me a favor. Can you give my sons like special leadership roles in your coming kingdom? Like maybe they could sit on your right and your left. That would be great. Any Jesus good says, mother willing to ask that question. What's that? Any good mother's willing to ask that question. <laughs> right. So, so James and John come with their mom. And Jesus says to her, you do not know what you're asking for. Mm-hmm. Because leadership in his kingdom is not about power and privilege. It's about service and sacrifice. And he says, you know, I, I, says to James, are you willing to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? I, he's referring to his death on the cross. Right. And then he says, unlike in the rest of the world where people sort of use their authority to lord it over others, in my kingdom, this is how it works. Anyone who wants to be great among you must be your servant and anyone who wants to be first wants to be last, because even the Son of Man, me, Jesus, didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So, so number one, before we even kind of think about who does what within the church, mm-hmm. we need to recognize that leadership in a Christian sense is, is about sacrifice and service, not about power and privilege. Yeah. And it's interesting to me, you know, both in the early church and in much of the global church today, to be a pastor is to be to put your life on the line like actually it's to be the first person hauled off to, to prison when the authorities come to close down the church or it's to be, you know the first person to be martyred it's not a like oh you know everybody come and um give me a nice pat on the back for for my great preaching this sunday morning kind of thing so then we need to have that framework in mind as we as any of us think about christian leadership yeah. when it comes to to the the different things that paul says in his letters um I actually think, I mean, people I truly respect for their theological understanding and biblical insight disagree about exactly how this should play out. Like when um, Paul is talking about women not um, teaching and having authority over men, like what exactly does that mean? Does that mean women should never preach to a congregation on a Sunday morning? Some would say yes, others would say no, and, and would actually kind of argue both, um, you know, I think quite compellingly from, from the scriptures. Um, so I, I'm personally kind of open to people landing in different places on exactly how that, that plays out. Um, I also find it very interesting that in Paul's letter to the Romans, um, chapter 16, the, the last chapter there, we see Paul um, listing many women as ministry partners. So, for example, in Phoebe, who carried the letter, it seems, for him, who he commends um, as a a servant of the church, whether that means, you know, that means like a, a deacon at the church, others not, you know, there's debate about that. Um, he talks about two sisters, Trifina and Trifosa, who are workers of the Lord. Um, he talks about Prisca and Aquila, who are a, a married couple, um, who are also, he sort of uh, elevates their um, gospel partnership. And I think in total, he, I think he references nine women in, in that list. So his his respect for women's gospel ministry is, is extremely yeah. high. Yep. Um, and I think we need to understand that as we look at any of the passages where he's giving specific instructions for what's happening in church. Tom Wright goes as far as to say is that we have uh, historical data that the people who carried the letter were often entrusted with reading the letter out loud and explaining what it meant. So that so here's Paul's most complicated, deeply theological letter to the church at Rome, and he entrusts it to a woman to bring it. Yeah. And he's like, we, we don't know the specifics, but we know in other instances when these letters were carried um, by somebody, 
and it was read out loud that they would stop and to say, okay, what Paul really means here is so that, of course, she was in a teaching kind of didactic kind of role, explanation role with the letter, given, given what we understand about history at that point. And he, he thinks we're not over-interpreting the text with fully understanding um, what, what that is. Um, mm -hmm. Definitely very difficult to understand contextually uh, the prohibitions, you know, against silence and teaching and what that had to, to deal with. Um, we've got a question here that came in um, after the question of whether or not I am drinking a Guinness. The answer to that is no, that's not beneath me and would be a nice celebration for, for the end. But no, this is just Georgia peach iced tea, just to be abundantly clear. Um, and then the um, uh, question about ordination, like so most, most of the denominations in the world don't ordain women. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you just take, uh, like this person is citing a statistic, I can't verify, but sounds right that 80% of Christians in the US belong to a denomination that doesn't ordain women. Um, and so do you have, do you have any kind of of your convictions that you want to share about what how your reading of scripture is on that? Yeah, so I think that, um, I'm, as I say, I'm sympathetic to readings of the scripture that allow for women to preach in certain circumstances. It, it does seem to be that there are certain roles that are reserved for qualified men. Now, whether, I mean, what exactly ordination means um, could, <laughs> it could mean different things to, to different people. And I do think that there's a, in terms of priesthood, that I think the fundamental New Testament proposition is the priesthood of all believers rather than of like just certain individuals. Um, but I do think there seems to be a, um, a sort of specific kind of leadership in the local church that's in entrusted to men. Um, and I don't, as I say, I don't think that is denigrating to women, um, nor does it sort of put women on some sort of lower uh, pedestal place uh, or should do in our thinking. Because, again, if we read the, the scriptures carefully, then we'll see that our automatic default assumptions about power, like leadership and status are actually completely wrong. Um, so I, for example, I personally wouldn't be comfortable going to a church where the senior pastor was a woman. Um, not that I don't think that there are women who are senior pastors who are also doing good gospel work. Um, you know, I certainly know, know folks who are, but that wouldn't be something that I would be uh, comfortable with in, in conscious myself. Don't know right. if that's helpful. Well, I, no, I appreciate the, and, and this is how we we need to learn how to, I was reading a book recently that says, it's not that we've forgotten how to agree, it's that we have forgotten how to disagree well. And it would be one of the first times in this in this podcast where we really, uh, in kind of webcast where we disagree, because I, I do believe women ought to be uh, uh, available to all offices in the life of the church, but we can love and respect one another, even in the midst of those uh, even in the midst of those uh, disagreements. Um, and, yeah, and, and interesting that you as a man um, read the scriptures that way and I as a woman read the scriptures the other way. Yeah. So it's not necessarily a, a question of kind of misogynistic men reading what Correct. they want in the scriptures. We, <laughs> like all of us need to, to come with our best understanding. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I had a good friend who was a woman in seminary who um, who was came from a more conservative tradition than I did and had different convictions about it and shared you know, shared your convictions about, you know, I think women should be able to be ordained, but there's certain roles they can't. And it was a funny part of the, you know, kind of the friendship, because I'm like, wow, that's so interesting, because I'm the man. And I actually think that women ought to be able to, um, to be able to have any of the offices there. 
Um, well, Rebecca, that's a, a great place for us to stop and just so appreciative of uh, everything you've done to, because uh, I, I actually think you've been teaching us, whether people think that's okay or not, I think you've been teaching us and guiding us in these, uh, in these weeks and just so grateful for the intentionality that you offer in the midst of uh, your, not just your reading of scripture, but also in your the unique voice that you're offering, um, not only for Christians, but in our culture at this time. And so just really grateful for you and for what this journey has been like. Well, thanks so much. It's been a real, real privilege. And to feel like I'm kind of, at least in some theoretical sense, talking with the same group of people week on week has been really nice. It's good. Yeah, you, it's, you probably haven't gotten to do this kind of week after week very much. It's probably been more like when back when you pre-COVID could actually go somewhere and speak somewhere, it was right. more of a one kind of a, a one shot moment. And yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so just, I see some, some people already in the chat already saying, thank you, just really encouraging you and for, for the journey that we've been on. So let me close us in a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for the ideas and the insights and the arguments. And we pray, God, that if there's anything from you that um, it may be taken quickly to, to heart, and if there's anything that we have said that is not of you, may it be quickly forgotten. Uh, thank you, God, for the partnership in the gospel, even over this medium, and, and how we can encourage one another and challenge one another and disagree with one another and love one another, respect one another all at the same time. So God, I ask for these posing questions and for your faithfulness to shine and not only the way we think and not only the way that we articulate, but in the way that we, um, in the way that we truly embody your presence to other people. So we thank you for your Holy Spirit that dwells within us and we love you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.